my privilege to preach this morning, and uh, I really uh, trust that you're going to be encouraged. So I would like to um, continue looking with you at um, the resurrection, but from a slightly different point of view. Uh, if you're visiting, we're doing a series on the resurrection leading up to Easter and Easter Sunday, and we've been investigating this for the last uh, couple of weeks. And the, the, the resurrection really is a wonder. It's an amazing, amazing thing to contemplate what actually was achieved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we read the four Gospels, uh, each of the Gospels present the life and the ministry of Jesus from the perspective of four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so when you look at these four things, um, we, we, sorry, uh, um, last time I preached, I looked at four things that we can be historically sure of about the resurrection that can give us great courage to know that the resurrection is a rock on which we stand. And uh, if, you, if you missed that message, I really would encourage you to listen um, on, on the podcast because I'm kind of launching off that this morning for what I'm saying uh, in terms of the, the message this morning. So I want to approach it a different way this morning. We're still kind of looking at the, the resurrection of Jesus, but I want to ask this question this morning and try and answer this question. Why did Jesus live? <laughs> Why did he live? And I could start with a really simple answer and just put it like this, that um, the reason that Je Jesus lived is you can clearly see it when you investigate some of the key scriptures that talk about this message of good news that Jesus brings. So, for example, um, Matthew uh, sorry, Mark 10.45, Jesus says this, Whoever would be great amongst you must be a servant, and whoever would be first amongst you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And we can link that back to the passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago out of Isaiah, the famous passage in Isaiah 53, which talks about the servant, the suffering servant, who was wounded and bruised and killed for our sin, for our transgressions. And so we could, we could quite easily say, well, that summarizes the message of Jesus, of His life, why He came. He came to put us in right relationship with, um, with the Father, that we could enjoy relationship with Him, and that's why He came to live. That's why He died. But I want to put it to you this morning does that really, that's all true, and we celebrate that. That's, that's the basis of what we believe as Christians, and, and I suppose you could say um, that for some people would say that's the heart of the Christian message, at the center of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus, which it absolutely is. Um, but does it really answer the question, why, why did Jesus live? What I'm trying to say is this. Was the whole of Jesus' life just a prelude to what he needed to do and achieve through his death and resurrection, or when we read the Gospels and we see this amazing story of Jesus unfold in the four Gospels, is there something else that the Gospels are trying to tell us as well? And I put it to you this morning that uh, the Gospel is trying to tell us something else as well, and we're going to discover that over the next weeks as we go ahead. Now, many people have answered this question. Um, about the life of Jesus and why he lived. And so what I want to do this morning is look at uh, briefly some, uh, just some history with you because we hold to this, this, this uh, firm foundation of the resurrection as believers, but there have been challenges to, to um, that foundation over the, the hundreds and thousands of years that we need to be aware of because 
they keep coming back. And I want to try and show some of that uh, to you this morning. Now, the first two or three centuries after Jesus uh, was raised from the dead, uh, there was a system of thinking began to develop in the early church, which was called Gnosticism. And basically what the Gnostics believed uh, really was a challenge to the orthodox view of who Jesus was and what Jesus uh, meant to people and how they, they understood Jesus and their theology of Jesus. And so the Gnostics really said this, that we need to replace this very Jewish message about Jesus, that God wanted to, through Jesus to establish a kingdom on earth, and, and replace it with a very non-Jewish message, which involved myth, Greek mythology and philosophy. And so these people, these Gnostics, saw themselves as Christians. They stayed in the church. But what they tried to do was to bring Greek thinking into the church and to understand the life of Jesus through Greek eyes, if, you, if, you, if, if I could put it like that. And so they said this. They said that we need, that the, pe the people that are really saved are people who have a special revelation from God. In fact, they put it like this. They said, all of us as creative beings, there's some very special created beings. They have a divine spark that resides in them, and they call this gnosis, knowledge. And these are very special people. And only they truly understand salvation. They are the special ones. They are the chosen ones. The, only these people really understand salvation. And you need this special revelation to, uh, to really know God. And if you don't have the special re revelation, you don't truly know God, okay? So it's a very elitist, very exclusive view. And even, they said, those that live by faith, even those that live by faith are a little bit inferior to the ones that have special revelation those that have true knowledge. And so right at the beginning of the church, Paul is already taking on these thoughts. So if we read in 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians was one of the first letters that was written by Paul. It's one of the earliest letters that we have. Listen to how Paul responds, because already these thoughts are there. And these thoughts develop over three centuries. But listen to what Paul says as he kind of opposes these people who are saying, you need special, special revelation. It's not just by faith. You need special revelation. This is what Paul says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom, the gnosis, the wisdom of, this, of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? He's talking about gnosis, knowledge. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Here's the key. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, gnosis. But we Preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The fullness of the wisdom of God and the fullness of the power of God meet in Christ Jesus. It's Paul saying straight up. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so basically over the, the, the roots of this kind of thinking that Paul is, uh, is addressing here in, in 1 Corinthians, the roots of this thinking grow into this very complex system of theology over the first three centuries, which really turns out to be a kind of self-help um, spirituality. And it's opposed by early church fathers like Tertullian and Arrhenius. And they say, no, 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 God has created the world and that the world needs to be rescued and God alone can rescue the world from its brokenness and sin. And they showed that there was error in this kind of thinking that there's a distinction between those that really have special knowledge and all the rest of us who live by faith. And this is what I believe Paul is saying over and over again. And the story of the gospel tells, the gospels tell us over and over again. It's written to tell us that there's a story of rescue for all of creation, not just for the spiritual parts of us, but God wants to rescue all of us, our bodies, our minds, our lives, and we cannot save ourselves. So you might say to me, well, Ant, what, what, what on earth, why are you mentioning that? That's very fascinating. It's, um, it's the second and third century. Why are you mentioning it? Well, I say it because... Have you noticed that there's a resurgence of this kind of thinking? In the last 20 years or so, I've noticed there's a popularization of different Gnostic thoughts. I had pictures up of the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. These are Gospels that were written, and we don't know who wrote all these Gospels, but they were written in the early first two or three centuries and attributed to different people. They've become very popular on National Geographic, and I've often uh, laughed a little because they always advertise them and say, something that you've never known about Jesus of Nazareth. New revelation that's going to blow your mind about Jesus of Nazareth. It's all Gnostic gospel. It's all Greek thought from many, many centuries ago that's becoming more and more popular. And the public face of it is something like the Da Vinci Code. Who saw that movie? Anyone? Yeah, the Da Vinci Code. Going to show you something that no one has ever known before. And the truth is that there is this conspiracy hidden from everyone. But now this conspiracy has come to light. And it's going to show you the truth about Jesus. It's going to show you the truth about the Roman church. And that actually the Roman church has actually oppressed people for centuries. And there are only a few people that really know what's been going on. And if you are one of those that really know what's going on, you'll see it for what, this, for what it is. And it will be exposed. And we will all be set free. Sound familiar? This is not new. <laughs> this is very old. This is what the Gnostics tried to say in the second century. Oh, you don't really understand who Jesus is, the Gnostics said. He was just a superhuman. A guy, a guy called, uh, it was called the Arian Controversy. Now, Jesus is not divine. He's just superhuman. And he, God wants us to be superhumans. That should just like prick your ears a little bit because someone else picked up on that point of view in the 20th century his name was Adolf Hitler and what did he do with his view of a superhuman race these things really matter because these things have influenced the world and the way that we know the world today so I want to put it to you 
you don't need special revelation, all right? <laughs> you need the Holy Spirit to teach you. The fullness of Christ in His Word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I trust that you will learn for yourself as you read the Gospels that God would speak to you, that with confidence you can know that God is speaking to you. And on that basis, you can build your life on a firm foundation that is Jesus, the rock of the resurrection. Amen? Have I still got you? Have I lost you? Second influence. Since the 18th century, in the 18th century, we had this thing called the Enlightenment, all right? Which was intellectual saying we need to think about a whole lot of stuff in, a very, in very different ways. And since the 18th century, all of us, whether we are aware of it or not, all of us are influenced by a thing called liberal reductionism. This is a fancy word. What does it mean? Well, liberal reductionism says this very simply. It says that Jesus really, when it comes down to the heart of it, Jesus was really just a nice guy. <laughs> and it says we need to approach what Jesus did with a new kind of approach uh, uh, that he really came to teach us very simply in a very clear, ethical way how to be nice people, how to be really loving people. And what we really need to do is just get rid of all the supernatural stuff that Christians say Jesus did. When we look back on history and we take out all the supernatural stuff, that's really just what Christians invented to kind of make Jesus into something that he wasn't. And actually, um, all the sort of doctrine stuff, you know, what Christians say that we believe, what they believe, we must, we must get rid of that as well. And what we, what we um, really are left with is who Jesus really was. And when we, when we investigate that, we'll find out that Jesus really was just a nice guy. A nice guy, a moral guy, a great teacher. And that's really all who Jesus was. And so I don't know if you have, might have heard of this book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. It was made famous by a guy called Albert Schweitzer, who was born in 1875. And basically he started to explore these things. He started, to, and this um, has become something as a result of the Enlightenment that we've inherited. I've even heard people say, um, don't speak so much Ant, about theology. You know, theology divides people. Don't, get, don't speak so much about that stuff. Just speak about the love of Jesus. That's all we need. We just need love. We just need to love each other. And we can, we, we can, we, as we love each other, people will find Christ. I want to say to you that actually you can't separate Jesus and the theology of Jesus from what, what he did through love. What did he do? He picked up the scroll and he read the scroll and he said, he quoted from Isaiah, what did he say? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set free the captives, to proclaim sight for those that are blind, and to say the day of Jubilee is here. You cannot separate the mission of Jesus from the theology of Jesus. He didn't just come and say, I'm basically a nice guy, and I'm going to teach you how to be nice guys. He didn't come to say that. He came to say something radically different. Why did Jesus live? So we go further. Uh, can you just go to the next slide? Should be at, um, yes. Here's our friend Richard Dawkins. See his T-shirt says, "Religion together we can find the cure." Isn't that cool? Together we can find the cure for all of those poor people that have faith. 
You see, this is really, Dawkins is really an extension of Enlightenment thinking. He's really just carrying on in the tradition of the Enlightenment. Basically, what he, he wrote this book called The God Illusion, which sold millions of copies. And for Dawkins, he, he clearly wants us to uh, see Jesus, not in any sense as a divine Savior, but he simply wants us to see uh, Jesus as a great moral teacher from which we can learn some stuff. But certainly, he's not God, and certainly, he is in no way divine. And so, there are many modifications of this position that I'm trying to illustrate this morning that we have to face in our, in our lives and face them head on. And uh, I'm, I am so encouraged that there are many Christian thinkers, many Christian scholars that have taken on this challenge to actually defend the Jesus of history and show how we can be certain of who he was and what he did, including what he taught and his supernatural acts of power. And uh, we had a look at last week. That, that was the basis of what I was trying to say last week. We can be sure of four, th four things about the resurrection. Historically, we can. And that's why we can have faith in what Jesus did. So here we have two kind of different views. This Gnostic view, which we still see the influence of. This view of the Enlightenment, which just says, oh, well, Jesus was just a cool guy. Relax, you Christians. Don't get so upset. You know, don't get so... Just love people. It's all going to be cool. That's a, that's a view that we live with today as well. And then thirdly, there's a, there's a third kind of perspective that I'd like to draw your attention to is this. There are many Christians, including, including Christians that have an orthodox view of who Jesus was, um, that have tried to think about the things that Jesus did, in other words, why he lived, with a view that they might show us a little of what the kingdom of God really is like. And when we look at the life of Jesus, it, in some way we can see the kingdom of God lived out in practice. And so, in other words, they're not looking so much at the center, the theology, but rather they're looking more at the practice, the, the outside, the practice of what we do as Christians. And so people that hold to um, this kind of view would say that the message of the good news is practically demonstrated as we rescue the poor, as we feed the hungry, as we bring social justice to the world for the widows and orphans and heal the sick and so on, that's what we really need to focus on because that's bringing the kingdom to earth. And so there are many people that I know that have given themselves to living like that. And that's a very wonderful thing. That's an amazing thing. And so over time, uh, this kind of thought has developed into a movement uh, and p people said things like, Jesus got his hands dirty in the world, and we need to get our hands dirty. We need to serve, and I absolutely uh, concur with that. We certainly do need to do that. But by the end of the 19th century, there was this phrase being called Christian socialism that was being used in, in c communities where they were trying to blend the spirit of spirituality with practical uh, reaching out to the poor, and perhaps the, the kind of... Um, the best kind of expression of that movement was Wilberforce, who, who helped, to, um, helped to end slavery, which was a very amazing achievement. And in the 20th century, we uh, saw the beginnings of the social gospel. Have you heard that phrase before? The social gospel. Matthew 25 became like a, an anthem for the social gospel. As you have done to the least of these, you have done it for me. Uh, that's why we need to reach out to the poor. Now, the problem is this. 
when you start to disconnect the theology, the center, from the practice, the outside, you lose the whole thing. This is what I'm trying to say. If we are only about caring for the poor, without telling people that Jesus is the Son of God, who came to die for the sins of the world, who, who was raised from the dead, it falsifies the very reason that Jesus came into the world. The only reason that we are able to reach out with compassion to the poor and to the broken and to the lost and the needy is because Jesus came out of love for the poor and the lost and the broken and the needy. And the two are directly connected to each other. We can't have one without the other. And so in a real sense, now 2017, where we are right now, having just witnessed another atrocity in Westminster this week, despite all the inroads that the social gospel has made into the world, our world, including the Western world, still is a place of great corruption, great wickedness, oppression of the poor, violence, sexual exploitation of people, war, genocide. And the social gospel certainly has done a huge amount to clean up slums, to reduce working hours for children. Uh, they're working in factories and many other things that are, that are truly outstanding and wonderful. I'm not knocking that at all. However, there's still homelessness, racism, virtual slave labor that are still realities in terms of our Western world. And the big question would be, what has fundamentally changed? Has the heart of man fundamentally changed? And so it seems to be the big question that we need to ask is this. What difference would it make to the world when the heart, the center of the Christian message, our theology, is more integrated with the bits on the outside, with the practice? What would it look like then if we can better connect those two? And I think as we better connect those two, we're going to start to find the reason why Jesus came to live. If we're going to start to answer that question in a meaningful way. And when I read the Gospels and I read the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that he did through his life, I'm convinced that when Jesus was talking about those things, he was in fact talking about God. And he was precisely explaining to us why he was coming and why he was doing this work that he called kingdom work. When we read the Gospels, that's what the Gospels are about. That is what the death and resurrection of Jesus really is about. It's about his kingdom coming to earth. And I'm trying to encourage you that as we live as Christians in the 21st century, which is becoming increasingly difficult, increasingly pressured from all sides, we have to hold on to our key beliefs, our theology, what is at the center with all of our hearts without compromise, and at the same time, the expression of our faith, what is on the outside, that it's full-blown, that it reaches every area of people's lives, that it deals with the deepest concerns of people, that it discerns with uh, issues that are, are big issues in our society, that the way that we are living as Christians is really touching those. So why was Jesus born? Why did he live? Well, I just want to reference again, as we answer that question, I want to reference the Enlightenment again. If you can go to uh, the next slide, please. The next one after that. 
This is my answer. Why did Jesus live? Why did he come? He came to bring the kingdom. He came to bring the kingdom on earth. And here's a picture of a a sort of benign old man. Uh, One day my beard will look like that, right? So he has a benign old man. He's kind of sitting by the fire. He's been put out to pasture. He's kind of resting. He's kind of, he's kind of happy looking back on his life, kind of what he's achieved. And this really is what the Enlightenment was saying about God. The Enlightenment was saying that God really is a doddery old man that should be taken upstairs. He should be left at the fire side. He should just go about his business you know, he was like running the show. He was like the boss in charge of the company. But now he's not really running anything anymore. He's kind of like resigned to this place by the fireside. And those that really know, those that really count, they're now running the business, all right? But God doesn't know. <laughs> We're really running the business. Those that are enlightened, those that are wise, those that are kind of know what's going on, we are really running the show. And God, he's really just up there somewhere, far removed from us, doing his thing, but he doesn't really have any kind of influence over us and over the world. And so this is what the Enlightenment said, that God shouldn't have any influence anymore. And he shouldn't have any influence through people that are spokespersons for him on the earth. And so there was this great challenge in terms of the place of the church and uh, the church that held, uh, the place that uh, in society that the church held. So I put it to you, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to the earth to demonstrate precisely the opposite of what the Enlightenment was trying to say that we are all about. The Enlightenment was trying to remove God and say God is not really interested in the world. And when we read the Gospels, what we find is that Jesus and God is passionately interested in the world. God so loved the world that He sent His Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The Gospels demonstrate exactly the opposite to what our world says. Oh, God is just removed. He's not interested. Get on with your life. Religion is a disease that you can be healed from. Get on with your life. Don't worry about God. He's not interested. Actually, the Gospels say God is very interested. The death of Jesus says, I am very interested. The resurrection of Jesus says, God is incredibly interested in your life. And He wants to transform it. And you see, we think these things don't affect us, but they do. So there's a Greek guy called Epicurus, and he was the first one to say, the gods don't worry about the earth, the gods are removed from us. And so in the 18th century, they pick up on this idea, God is not really interested in us, God is removed from us. What does it lead to? You apply that idea that there's no divine influence on the world, you apply it to a scientific study of how the world was created, what do you end up with? Darwinism. God is not involved in creation. It's all just evolution and chance. Take God out of it, you end up with Darwinism. What do you end up if you, if you apply, apply it to political science, how people organize themselves? There's no king anymore. That's what happened in the French Revolution. No king. Take the king away. The people decide what is right. We have democracy, and I believe in democracy. But what is the problem? 
The problem becomes that eventually when you take God out of democracy, the people decide according to their whims, their fancies. They decide what is right for societies. And what do we end up with right now in our world? Democracies that are, are splitting apart because of human rights and this one's rights and that one's rights and that one's rights. You take God out of it, you take the absolutes out of it, society becomes absolute in of itself, and we have the mess that we are living in right now. And so I put it to you, why did Jesus live? He came to establish himself as king. This is the wonder of what we believe as Christians. It is a new kingdom. It is a new theocracy, if you like. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Lord of the universe has come and he's dwelt amongst us and he's become king on earth. It's a radical new view of life, of the universe, of everything. It, it opens doors that no one can shut when we see things like this. But it also means we have to think of some other things, some other things we need to consider. What does this kingdom look like? Is it fully here? Is it only partially here? I put it to you, if you start to grasp the kingdom of God is here and that Jesus came to, full, to, to establish this kingdom, you can't stay indifferent to that fact. It has to move us somehow. That's the point I believe Paul is making when he writes and he talks about the, uh, what, what Jesus has done and established uh, on this earth. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king. What does that kingdom look like? Does that mean that you and I, if, if Jesus really is king and, is, and he really has established his kingdom here on earth, does that mean that we have to be under the rule of some kind of corrupt clergy? <laughs> is that what I'm saying when I say Jesus is king? What about the fact that actually our world is, is in a, the state that it is and some of the people that have contributed most to the world being in the terrible state that it is are Christians? How do we think about that? When we say Jesus is enthroned, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean in only in a spiritual sense, or does it mean in some other sense as well? Well, we're going to answer some of these questions next week, the next time I preach. What does this kingdom look like? What about the stuff in the middle? If I've talked about a little bit about the theology and I've talked a little bit about the practice, what we do, what about all the other stuff in the middle? What about the miracles? What about the acts of power? How do they all fit in? What do they, what do they mean in the kingdom that Jesus is coming or has come to establish? Obviously, we can't answer all these questions in one week. But I, I want to encourage you, if you go, go to the next slide, please, if you can uh, start thinking about these things in the next couple of weeks. So ask yourself, well, if this kingdom has been inaugurated in Jesus, what is it supposed to look like? Does it, does it, um, does it look right now like it's going to look forever? Uh, go to the next slide, please. I've I asked these questions already, but... I want to encourage you to start thinking about them in your own time, meditating on them in your quiet time. How can we positively contribute as believers in this kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated, has come to establish, that we can live in a way that demonstrates that to the world 
with compassion, with kindness, but not compromising on who Jesus is, what he, come, what he came to establish, and what he came to do. I'm going to just pray for us, and then I'm going to ask uh, Ed, do you want to come and lead us? Ed, we're going to just finish with a little time of response in worship. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for what you've come to establish, what you came to establish through the life and death of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you weren't in the person of Jesus just demonstrating a new way of living to us. You weren't saying, here are some new rules to live by. Here's, here, here's what, uh, the kind of person demonstrating Jesus who's just a good guy. That's who I want you to be. I thank you in the person of Jesus, you were demonstrating your power. I thank you in, in, in the, the person of Jesus and his life, you were inaugurating your kingdom. You were saying, this is my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to meditate on what that means for us, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us, that you'd help us to understand how that, that changes the way that we live in a meaningful way, touching the lives of others, that we wouldn't just be held prisoner of the way that people think and just inherit the way that people think, and we would become prisoners to that. They would, they would think in a way that demonstrates your kingdom, that reflects your kingdom, that lives in a way that brings your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Help us, Jesus. Pray that you'd set us free, that you would transform our minds, as, as Paul says, that you renew our minds and transform our minds that we might become increasingly those that reflect your kingdom, reflect who you are to those that we touch through our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we worship now, you would, you would seal these things in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit, you'd come, you'd just cement them in us, that you would transform the way that we live by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.